Friends, what I love about the song that we've just sung are many of its truths, but in particular, um, the third stanza is very appropriate to, for us to sing uh, before we hear God's Word. And I want to read the, the stanza, the third stanza, just to remind us uh, of, of the resource that we have among us when the Holy Spirit is with us. Come, Holy Spirit, or Holy Comforter, thy sacred witness bear in this glad hour. Now, how would the Spirit uh, bear his, his sacred witness in glad hour, in this glad hour? Here's a prayer. The rest of the stanza says, Thou who almighty art, now rule in every heart, and never from us depart, Spirit of power. Well, friends, I hope that that is true of every one of us this morning, that the Holy Spirit would rule in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would subdue any, any thought of ignorance or any thought of negligence or any thought of rebellion that we might have against, against God. That the Holy Spirit would just come and rule over every heart. I pray that that would be the case for the rest of our service this morning. Well, this morning, friends, um, as we are, in getting, or are getting on to the, almost to the final not the final, but almost to the final sermon of uh, the book of James. I want to start off by uh, mentioning a book that we are uh, encouraging all of uh, those who are considering to take the membership seminar. Um, we are encouraging the participants of that seminar to uh, get a copy of the book, What is a Healthy Church Member? And read it before the seminar and uh, be ready for, for talking about it. We'll talk through it at the seminar, but in particular, Sabitio Nebulae, the author of the book devotes his last chapter of that book to the theme of prayer. And in that book, he makes an interesting observation on the theme of prayer. He says the following, I can't think of a single Christian I've met who did not believe that prayer is important. And not only important, but a vital part of the Christian life. But, he says, Despite its universally accepted status, prayer remains for many Christians a difficult task, a duty without joy, and sometimes seemingly without effect. Christians may waver between the poles of neglect and frustration when it comes to prayer. Well, I wonder, dear brothers and sisters, if, if these words reflect any of us these mor this morning. If these words describe any of us this morning. I wonder if, if any of us could use some encouragement this morning. Encouragement to pray. Now, we know that prayer is important. We are commanded to pray. But I wonder if any of us could use some encouragement to actually carry out that commandment to pray. Well, if you find yourself in, in that spot, uh, this sermon is for you. If you say, well, I, I think I, ha I, I got it. I'm actually I'm pretty encouraged in my prayer life right now. Well, friends, I think you can still listen to this sermon because you will hit times in the future when you will need the encouragement. And I encourage you to listen to it for those times when you feel like you will need to be encouraged to keep on praying. I encourage you to open Scripture to James chapter 5 as we are um, reading for the fourth time this passage. 
uh, verses 13 to 18. And I promise you, today will be the last time on this particular passage. Next week, we will uh, work on the last two verses of the book of James. Uh, here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18. Is any among, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any, anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word? Father, we are grateful that we can hear your word. We're grateful that we can stand in, in your presence. And we ask, O oh Lord, by your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you speak to our hearts in a way that our hearts need to hear? Father, we pray that we would have hearts that are open, not only to hear and listen, but that we'd be open to receive and open to accept and open to obey and open to live it out. We pray this in the name of Christ, for His glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, this entire paragraph that we've, uh, we've read again this morning has a main focus, the theme of prayer. And just as a way of review for those of you who are for the first time with us this morning, I want to review briefly what we went over and to show you how the theme of prayer is pervasive throughout this paragraph. Uh, it starts in verse 13 with a command, is anyone among you suffering? And the word for suffering, as we saw a few weeks ago, doesn't refer simply to physical suffering, although it can include that. It can refer to any kind of difficulty that we may go through and encounter. Is anyone among you going through difficulty? The command is, let him pray. In verse 14, James addresses specifically those who are sick. And he says, uh, what are they to do if they're sick? Well, not only should they pray as they're suffering, not only they should pray personally, but they should also call the elders of the church and let the elders of the church pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And two weeks ago, we looked at what this practice could signify and why we should do it. In verse 15, James speaks again about prayer. And in verse 15, he gives us a promise. The promise is that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And last week, we looked at this promise and what it might mean. In verse 16, we have another command to pray. This time, the command to pray is connected to the, also another command to confess our sins to one another. Verse 16 says... Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I want to I pick it up in this verse. 
And at this point, verse 16, James moved beyond simply the personal command to personally pray on our own. At this point, he's actually encouraging the whole congregation to pray for one another, to confess our sins to one another. And who is the one another? It's us who gather. It's us who know one another. It's us who, who live our life together and follow all the one another commands week in and week out. What's interesting is that in the Greek language, the uh, promise that you may be healed is given in the plural. Now, this is where the English language is a little confusing. I know the English language wants to be simple, but at this point, it's so simple that it can be confusing. When you, we, we have pronouns for the you, both in the singular and in the plural. It's the same you. Now, Texans have figured out a way to, to work around it. We say y'all. Right? That, when we say plural you, we mean y'all. So another way to, in, to, to understand this, this passage or this verse is, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that y'all may be healed. It's a corporate promise. This promise of healing is not just a promise for individuals. It's a promise for the community, for the corporate healing as well. Now, you might say, why would that be important here in James? Well, do you remember chapter 4? I hope you keep your Bibles open. Just a page or even on the same page, perhaps, in your Bibles. Uh, chapter 4, there were quarrels. There were fights among the people to whom James is writing, in the churches to whom, in which they were gathering. And the problem behind their quarrels and, and fights were their own passions that were at war among them or in themselves. So verse 16 of chapter 5, James calls them as a whole church to repent and to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. Because do you realize that there can be sickness in the church because of the destructive behavior that's expressed in James chapter 4? The bitterness, the jealousies, the slander, the false accusations, the speaking against one another. I love how one of the commentators said, um, the corporate confession of corporate sins and prayer for one another heals the church's wounds. You may say, Pastor, you don't understand. These wounds are deep. You don't understand. These wounds are spread out wide and wildly. We, we can't change people who are angry with one another. Pastor, you don't understand. We cannot uproot the bitterness that's there. We can't take the disposition of being unforgiving. We can't take out the selfishness and the self-centeredness of people. Well, humanly speaking, you're right. We, we may not be able to understand, to, to, to change the hearts of others, but there is a solution that God gives us. And God gives it to the whole church. And that solution is prayer. Prayer. So for the rest of this paragraph, James will encourage us 
to be serious about prayer. If up to this point, James commanded us several times to pray, both individually and corporately, now he will give us the encouragement why we should pray. He commanded us to pray, and that should be a good enough reason to pray. But he doesn't stop there. He's going to encourage us to pray. He's going to give us encouragements after the commandments were given. He's going to give encouragements, and then he's going to give an illustration. Let's look at both of these parts. First of all, the encouragement. The prayer of the righteous is powerful. This is the encouragement. This is not a command. This is the encouragement. Look at verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, it's interesting that James says that it's the prayer of the righteous person. He doesn't simply say prayer is powerful. He says the prayer of a righteous person. What, what does this mean? And the word righteous can, can be used in different ways in the Bible. Um, it can be used of God. He is righteous in the sense that he is sinless. He's perfect. There's no sin with him, no imperfection with him. In that way, he's in a category by himself of being righteous, God and, and Jesus Christ as well. There are other times when the word righteous is used in a, in a somewhat of a, of a mocking way, uh, like those who pretend to be righteous. Uh, Jesus used that word for the Pharisees who thought they were righteous. Well, they weren't, but they thought they were. So at one point, Jesus says, I have come to, to call not the righteous, but the unrighteous. Um, and so in that sense, the word righteous can, can be, is used in a different way. It's really used for those who pretend to be righteous, but are not. Most of the time, the word righteous is used in the Bible in a third way that is speaking about God's people. And it doesn't mean that they are sinless or perfect and, and no, absolutely no flaw, but that they are seeking diligently to pursue God's ways and to live God's, God's path. In that sense, the word righteous is used, for instance, of, of Simeon and Anna. Remember in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke, they were awaiting for the, the appearance of the Messiah, of the hope of, of the promised one, and the Lord had told them that they would not die before they, they would see him. And, and Luke describes them as both of them where they were righteous people. By that, Luke does not say that Simeon and Anna were sinless, that they have not committed some sort of sins at that point in their previous life or previous living, uh, but they were seeking diligently and, and in, intently, then uh, they were living out the ways of God as best as they could, and that was their desire. And in that sense, the word righteous is used a lot to speak about God's people, those who desire to live in God's ways. Well, friends, when James speaks about the prayer of the righteous, he doesn't speak about the prayer of the super-Christian or someone who is really high up in the, in the chain of, of, of church leadership. No, he's simply speaking about the, 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 the average Christian, the normal Christian who seeks to live out God's ways. Well, friends, I hope that includes every one of us here this morning. I hope that every one of us this morning fits in this category of, of the righteous I pray that your life is characterized by this desire to reflect the righteousness of God, 
Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you've been invited this morning here or you came on your own initiative somehow just to check out a church, we're so glad that you're here. We hope that God's Word speaks to you this morning. I want to make sure you understand how is it that you can be considered in this category of the righteous. The first thing I want to be sure you understand is that none of us become or get to be a part of this category by our own effort. None of us get to become righteous by obtaining our righteousness through our good deeds. Friends, in order to become righteous in the sight of God, the only way for us to, to get to that status is if we are given that status. And that status is given to us as a gift. If we rely upon Jesus, if we depend on Him for the salvation of our souls. The Bible says that we have been created in God's image. We have made to reflect Him. We, have, we were made to, to belong to God, but mankind has rebelled against God. And because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we have inherited, all of us, a corrupt nature. And now we are predisposed, we are inclined by nature to always act in rebellion to God, ignoring His ways, ignoring His commands, living self-centeredly, seeking our own glory, seeking to, to find delight in our own selves. And the punishment of our sin, the punishment of our rebellion is death. But God in His mercy, in His grace, He sent His Son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that none of us would ever live. And then he died on a cross. He paid on that cross. He paid for the penalty of, of the sins of all those who would repent and trust in Christ for their salvation. And all those who, who acknowledge their sin, and all those who turn away from their sin, and all those who rely on Christ to have paid for that sin, all those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ, they are granted, they are given the righteousness from God that comes to us by faith in Jesus. Friends, that's the only way that we can be given and can be made righteous before God. Friends, if, if you've never repented of your sin and never trusted in Christ for, for your salvation, I call upon you today, I encourage you, let this day be a day when you respond to the gospel by repentance and faith. Let this service right now, as you are hearing these words, ask God, tell God that you want to repent and ask Him to save you in the name of Christ. And He will do it. If you'd like to know more about what that means, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But if you know some other Christians in this church, I encourage you, talk to them first. Tell them or ask them what this means. But let this day be a day in which you also can be declared righteous before God. And here's the crazy part. For all, all those who have responded to the gospel, all those who have been made righteous by faith before a holy God are now given the power through the Holy Spirit to reflect this righteousness in their daily living. Christians are given the power by the Holy Spirit to actually say no to sin in a way that they were not enabled to before. Christians actually now desire and love to live in, in this new way that reflects God's righteousness. That's why for Christians 
when we encourage one another to live out righteously, to live out in, in the obedience of Christ, for us it's a joy to do that. Now, I understand it's not always a joy when we are tempted by Satan and, and start uh, buying his lures and we believe, believe easily that the, the, the sins of, of the flesh would give us more joy than, than the righteousness of God. I understand that we can be deceived into believing that it would be more joyful to live a life of sin than a life of, a life of, of pleasing to God. But friends, realize that the Holy Spirit gives us power. The Holy Spirit gives us conviction. And when we fall into sin, He convicts us of that sin. And He gives us the, the ability to, to turn and we repent of our sin and, and, and resp respond to God by desiring to follow in His ways. Friends, realize Christians are people who love to live the righteousness of God because that righteousness reflects the character of God. So friends, I want to be sure that when we think and hear these words, the prayer of the righteous... We're not talking about the prayer of the super-Christians. We're simply talking about the prayers of the regular Christians who understand what it means to be a Christian and who, who in their lives, in their daily lives, seek and desire to live out God's ways. Well, friends, James says, James says that the prayer of such people has great power. To seek God in prayer and to ask Him for His goodies, yet not seek His will or seek His path, will not work. To pray to God and ask Him to do something, but you choose to stay far from Him, will not work. Remember again, chapter 4, James says to the people whom he's writing, he says, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Why is prayer ineffective in chapter 4? He says, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Yes, you may be a praying people. Yes, you may be asking God. But you're not asking out of a desire that seeks the righteousness of God. You're asking with a heart that seeks to fulfill your own sinful passions. Yes, there is prayer that God will not listen. But here in chapter 5, James says there is a prayer that God will listen. The prayer of the righteous is powerful as it is effective. So James wants to assure us that when we pursue righteousness, when we pursue God's ways, we have the assurance that our prayers are effective. Our prayers are powerful. Now this phrase, this promise, the prayer of the righteous has great power as it is working, has some difficulties. And here's the, the difficulties. There's two ways to, to understand the difficulty, or there are two options. Some people use the phrase, as it is working, to, um, to translate it in this way. The prayer of a righteous person is of great power when it is working. Meaning, if God chooses to use your prayer to work, it is powerful. So some people, some versions would translate it not the as it is working, but when it is working. Grammatically, it is a viable translation, grammatically. There's another grammatical possibility. The phrase as it is working could describe the kind of prayer someone is offering. And that verb as it is working could also be translated as 
energetic prayer or working prayer. So those who would translate it in the second way uh, would say something like, um, so it, the energetic prayer of a righteous person has much power. Or the effectual or the effective prayer of a righteous person has much power. Those who translate the second way wonder, well, what would make my prayer energetic? So they think, if I can just pray with more volume, that will make it more energetic. Or if I can just pray it in a certain way, that will make it more effectual. Well, friends, some people translate that way. The, the text could actually allow us to translate both ways. Here's another difficulty. We don't know which way it is. So the ESV translates it in an intentionally ambiguous way. It says, the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. It could be either. And my, both might be, might be okay, legitimate. But the bottom line is, we don't have to choose between either. The bottom line is, I think James is using this verse to encourage us that prayer is effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. When it comes to prayer, there are two dangers we must avoid. Some people think that God would not work unless we pray. Some people would try to get God's people, to encourage God's people to pray uh, using this, um, this trick. Friends, if we don't pray, God will not work. Or the reason why things are so bad is because God's people are not praying. Friends, that seems to limit God to what our prayers can handle. Well, that, that's an that's a unhealthy extreme. We would not want to limit God's power or, or sort of put God in a cage of our own prayers. Some re re reject to this one extreme and go to the other direction. And the other extreme is that in a desire to protect the sovereignty of God, some people would say that since God is sovereign, since God, since God has made up his mind, it's useless to pray. Our prayers don't really have much effect. Well, friends, both explanations are unbiblical. And both are dangerous directions we can go into. James wants to build in us the confidence that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Friends, the people who are confident in the power of prayer show their confidence by the fact that they pray. You really show your confidence that prayer is powerful by the fact that you actually pray. Not as a last resort, but as the first inclination of the heart. And they pray because they seek God's way. The people who seek God's righteousness are people who go to God in prayer. I love how Don Carson spoke about prayer. He said the effective prayer is a fruit of a relationship with God not a technique for acquiring blessings. Effective prayer is a fruit of a relationship with God, not a technique for acquiring blessings. And by the way, remember the words of Jesus also, who said in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
But remember that whatever we wish will be done for you if we abide in Him and if His Word abides in us. If our wills and, and the Lord's will become so united together that, that we, whatever we ask, the Lord is, is ready and willing to, to give to us. So friends, as we seek to live out God's Word, we should be encouraged not only to seek to live righteously, to have, have a, a living and active faith, which has been the theme of this entire letter, but as we seek to have a living and active faith, oh friends, seek and pursue prayer. And be assured of this, that an active, living faith produces prayer that is effective and powerful. That's encouragement. And now an illustration. As all good sermons, they must have some illustrations. James, at the end of this letter, gives us a powerful illustration. As a matter of fact, throughout this letter, he's been giving us examples. Examples from the Old Testament. In chapter 2, when he spoke about faith, the true faith, the living faith versus a dead faith, he gave the example of uh, Abraham. He also gave the example of um, Job. He gave the example of the prophets. Now at the end of this letter, he gives us the example of Elijah. Elijah. Let's look at him as an example of prayer. Elijah was considered one of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, most of the Jews um, considered him second after Moses. When Jesus went up on the mountain of transfiguration, when he went up with two of his disciples and his face was transformed and, and made glorious. Remember whom, who Jesus talked to? The two figures from, from heaven that Jesus talked to was Moses and Elijah. Plus, if you remember the stories of Elijah from the Old Testament, the Lord used Elijah in some great, great ways to bring fire from heaven on Mount Carmel to show who the true God was as opposed to the, the false gods of the Baal. God used the words of Elijah and his prayer on Mount Carmel. If you go on in 1 Kings chapter 18, you read his, his prayer. It's a simple prayer. It's a prayer that, that points the glory back to God. God, let this people know who is a true God today. Let them know who is a true God by seeing which God can answer prayer. And God brought fire from heaven and, and burnt out the, the, the burnt offering. Also remember that Elijah is, is a prophet whom God used when uh, the son of, an, of a widow died. Elijah prayed. And God restored that young man to life. In our text, we're told, what we're told about Elijah is that he prayed for drought to come. And when he prayed, it came. And then he prayed for rain to come, and when he prayed, rain came. Now, friends, I don't know about you. If I look at an example like that for prayer, you and I might be tempted to wonder, well, who can pray like that? I mean, who can pray like Elijah? I mean, there are no Elijahs today. Why, why is Elijah used as an example? I mean, this is so super high in terms of 
what the prayers of Elijah accomplished, that if anything, it might be an encouragement not to pray, because nobody can pray like that. Well, friends, this is exactly where James confronts us with Elijah's example. James expects that some of us will have that objection. Yes, God used Elijah in some great ways to accomplish some great miracles. But James wants to point out that Elijah was actually a man just like us. So look at verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's the first thing James wants to say to us about Elijah. Before you get discouraged about all the things uh, that if you were to compare his miracles with, with whatever you would hope for, James wants to bring us to our attention that Elijah was a man just like us, with a nature like ours. And remember, remember Elijah's weaknesses? He suffered hunger. He became filled with self-pity. He suffered despair and even depression. At the height of his depression, he even asked God to take his life away. And God did not answer that prayer. As a matter of fact, God did the very opposite for Elijah. He granted Elijah never to see death. Sometimes God works the exact opposite of what you ask him. If you asked Elijah how he was doing, he would tell you he never felt like a hero, even though the generations after him looked at him as such. He often found himself in danger and needing to run away. He found himself often dependent on others to feed him because of hiding from the leaders of Israel who were seeking his life. He lived in a time when the entire northern kingdom has fallen into apostasy. At one point, he was afraid that even the cause of his God was lost because he felt alone in seeking after God. He said, there's no one else. They've killed them all. There's no one else who would seek God's righteousness. Elijah did not live or see the days of spiritual growth or spiritual well-being. So he was often, often discouraged. You would deal with a prophet who was not in a good mood most of his days. And yet, in the midst of all those weaknesses, Elijah is presented to us as an example. An example of a man who prayed. A man who prayed fervently. That's how James wants us to remember Elijah. With a, with a nature similar to ours, similar to our weaknesses, similar to our passions, and yet a man of prayer. Elijah's fervent prayer, if we looked at at 1 Kings chapter 17 um, and 18 and then 19, we, we are told that Elijah prayed 
And when he prayed, he actually, in, in, verse, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, when he prayed for rain to come, he prayed once and nothing happened. He prayed the second time and nothing happened. He prayed the third time and nothing happened. He prayed the fourth time and nothing happened. You're wondering, Lord, what is it? Is there something wrong about me? Is there something wrong about my faith? Elijah uh, kept praying. He prayed the fifth time. Nothing happened. He prayed the sixth time. Nothing happened. He prayed the seventh time. And the seventh time, a small cloud appeared on the sky. Now, there's nothing magical or nothing unique about the, the praying seven times idea or nothing formulaic about that. The point is, Elijah didn't just pray once and it just happened. There was a, a prevailing in prayer. There was a, a desire to pray and seeking to pray until the Lord would answer. There are some people who, who might have the impression, listen, I prayed once, I brought it before the Lord, now he knows it. It's done. I, I, I'm now I'm just going to wait to see when he's going to respond. Well, friends, that is not the way the Bible speaks about us persisting in prayer. The Lord actually wants us to pray until we receive. The idea of just praying once and then you just leave it there is not the example that we see here with James, with Elijah. It's not the example that we see in Jesus giving the parable of the widow with the un or the evil judge. There's many examples in Scripture where we are commanded to continue to pray, pray constantly. Just that you prayed once and then you leave it to the Lord is not the way the Bible speaks about our praying. Christian, let me ask you, how much time do you spend praying and seeking God's face? If we believe that prayer is powerful, why do we struggle to spend time in it? Is it because we fall in this trap that I just explained? Is it I prayed once, I prayed when I was in church Sunday, and that will carry me for the whole week? Is it because we know that in our heart, in our heads, we know that, our, that prayer is powerful, but our hearts are not truly convinced of it, so we will not continue to seek it? Friends, the life of Elijah is a great example that our God is a God who answers prayer. If our God is a God who answers prayer, who can cause a drought to come, a drought for three and a half years, at the prayer of His servant, and if God can bring rain at the power of His servant, oh friends, let your heart be confident of this, that God listens to the prayers of His servants. He may not listen on the first time you pray. He may not listen on the second time you pray. He may not listen even on the seventh time you pray. Keep praying. The prayer of the righteous has great power as it is working. Oh, friend, let your, let your heart be confident in this, that God is a God, our God is a God who listens to the prayer of His righteous people. Church, I want to I bring this to a challenge for us as a congregation, not just individually, but as a church. How much time do we spend as a church praying and seeking God's face? Now, we've, we've added more prayers in our morning service uh, in a way that those who visit us oftentimes notice that we pray more often in the morning service than, we, than they've seen in other churches. We, we don't want to compete with other churches by any means. We just feel drawn to pray more. But not only in the morning service, 
as a church, we actually have started a few years ago to have an evening service that's specifically aimed and uh, focused on prayer. If there is one encouragement I want to bring to us as a congregation, friends, is that we should desire to gather specifically for the purpose of prayer, to gather as a church to pray. That's why I'm encouraging all of us. One of the, one of the, one of the ways, one of the, the, the burdens I feel as your pastor is to lead you to be more confident and more desiring to pray together as a church. Now, friends, I realize that it's very difficult to carve out time in our weekly uh, schedules uh, to pray. I realize it's a challenge. It's not easy. It doesn't come easy to any of us to pray personally and to pray corporately. Friends, if, we, if we're honest and understand that there's great power in the prayers of God's righteous people, friends, then why would we not reshuffle our schedules in such a way that we do carve out time where we do pray, both personally, privately, in our closets, but also together as a church, as a congregation. The notion of gathering a second time on a Sunday uh, has become such a big challenge for many Christians today. We have gotten used to getting Sunday night to be family time, a private time, or whatever. Friends, we want to think of Sunday as a day in which it's devoted to both public and private worship. And we want to encourage our members, our congregation, to gather, to, to make time of, of their Sunday afternoons, to come and gather as a church to pray. This week, an article appeared on the Gospel Coalition website on why our churches don't gather to pray. So I want to read to you just a few paragraphs of that article. The author says the following, We as Christians talk an awful lot about what is wrong. And he was talking about in our society, in our, in our country, and other things. Many people engage the issues on social media, and there's a lot of chatter by Christians on the topic. But is this really a strategy for doing anything about it? Don't get me wrong, he says. I'm all for talking. People are shaped and challenged by healthy public discourse. But this can't be all that we do. It isn't even the best thing we can do. Let me put it another way. If we believe that God is good, sovereign, and holy, and that He has told us to cast our burdens on Him in prayer, where are the public prayer meetings by God's people? If we're so exercised by injustice and depravity, why don't Christians flood the church prayer meetings to gather with their brothers and sisters and plead with God in prayer? Why aren't prayer meetings overflowing with burdened and broken people who want God to intervene and act? The article goes on and says, Many pastors who don't have a prayer meeting at their church will tell you that they don't have one because people won't come. Many other churches who have the meetings in the church have a much smaller attendance in these meetings than the regular Sunday gathering. I often wonder, he says, I often wonder why the church does not pray more. Why is it so hard for Christians to talk to God, but so easy for us to discuss our complaints with others or to vent on social media? Are we really as upset as we let on? Do we really believe that God will answer us and act? If the answer to the first two questions are yes, then why don't we pray more? 
We complain that in the 1960s, we took prayer out of the schools. I've not heard anyone complain that often that we have taken prayer out of churches. We're wondering why our nation is the way it is. I'm wondering why is our church the way it is, not just ours, the church. Do you remember the commitment to prayer of the early church? They were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. Promise from Jesus. Jesus said, the Spirit will come. Don't leave this place until He comes. So they knew he, the Spirit was coming. You know what they did between the time that Jesus left and the Spirit came? Acts 1.14 All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They knew the promise of Jesus. They expected it. And they committed to pray because they knew it would happen. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The church, the early church was a church committed to prayer. Friend, I, I want to encourage you to re-examine both your personal time of prayer in your personal life, but also if you are a member of our church, I want to challenge you to examine yourself and your commitment to gather with the church on Sunday nights to pray as a church. We can pray throughout the week when we gather in home groups, in other Bible studies, in other meetings, but I want to call the church to come together on Sunday nights to pray. Now, we will not have evening services for the next three weeks. We will resume our services, our evening services on October 23rd. That means I am giving you three weeks, or we're giving you three weeks to have time to reshuffle your schedule uh, in a way that you could come and be with us when we start these gatherings again. We want our people to pray and gather to pray. Let's gather to pray for the spiritual health and for the spiritual growth of God's work among us. Let's pray for discernment and God's guidance regarding our, our direction as a church. Let's pray that God would cause more gospel fruit to blossom among us. Let's pray that our church might be healed of any wounds of the past or of the present or of any, any wounds that we might cause in the future. Let's pray that we would be faithful and zealous to reflect God's character and nature. Let's pray that we would be zealous with the gospel, that we would be a people ready to share it. Let's pray that we would be people full of compassion for those who are needy among us. Let's pray that we would grow in, in the support of our missions work to see the gospel spread both in our city, our nation, and around the earth. Friends, there are so many encouragements of prayer in the New Testament. Let me just give you a few more. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And there's the example of Epaphras, who Paul says is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Friends, if we want to grow in understanding prayer, how to grow in your own prayer life, let me encourage you with two things, practical things. First of all, 
I encourage you to um, pick up a book that will, will bless your soul on how to think about prayer. A book written by D.A. Carson called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. I encourage you to pick it up. It's a little longer book. It's not a quick read, but it's a, it will bless your soul. If you want to grow in prayer, here's a second encouragement I want to give you. Spend time with people who pray. Ask them if you could meet with them simply to pray. Let them know that their prayers have been a great encouragement to you, and that you would like to grow in praying. It is okay for us to try to imitate in a good way others who are further along than us in their prayer life. Spend time with them. Seek them. The Lord has blessed us with quite a few of them here in our congregation. Commit to meet with others. Ask others to meet with you simply to pray. Friends, we spent four weeks on this paragraph, these verses, verses 13 to 18, whose major focus has been the theme of prayer. James not only commands us to pray, James encourages us to pray. And James gives us illustrations that prayer is indeed powerful. Friends, never, never may it be said of us what James said about the Christians to whom he wrote, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. May it be said of us that we are a righteous people who pray and seek God in prayer and see the power of God working as a result and as in the response to the prayers of your people so that the name of God would be exalted among us. Would you pray with me? Father, at the end of these sermons that have specifically drawn our attention to prayer, Father, we ask, would you put a burden for prayer in every heart that is here this morning? May the words we have heard from you work in us and produce the fruit of an inner desire, of an inner burden for prayer, that we would not simply just ask people to volunteer to pray, but that people will respond to the Spirit's work of leading us to pray, of seeking times of prayer, both personally and corporately. Lord, would you do that for us? so that your name would be exalted in our midst as a response or as a result of the response of your prayers, our prayers to you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.